Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, coming to you today with a number that may surprise you, 820%. That's how much our region's immigrant population grew between 1970 and 2010, according to the Brookings Institution. These days, more than 20% of people who call Washington home come from other countries. And more than 25% use a language other than English as a primary tongue. And so today, we'll look at Washington as a magnet for people from around the world. We'll meet folks from Mali, Saudi Arabia, and Bosnia, among other nations, as we bring you an annual special we call Global DC. We'll begin our Global DC show not so much with how the world comes to Washington, but how Washington comes to the world in times of crisis. Headquartered here in D.C. within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services is a corps of officers whom the U.S. Surgeon General has called the true guardians of global public health. We're talking about the United States Public Health Service Commissioned Corps. And as Rear Admiral Scott Guyberson will tell you, Our mission is to uh, protect, promote, and advance the health and safety of the nation. Both domestically and abroad. At any given time, approximately 6,700 commissioned corps officers are working around the globe to fulfill this mission. Until recently, many of them were responding to the Ebola outbreak in Liberia. It was part of the largest American intervention in a global health crisis ever. At the time, there was about 80 cases a day in country. If you could imagine the United States with 80 cases a day of Ebola, you'd probably see a tremendous, tremendously different situation. You know, So this is right in our portfolio of what we've done across our 200-year history. In fear of some infectious pathogen or unknown situation, we're able to step up and deploy into a situation like this where there definitely is fear and anxiety. The U.S. Commissioned Corps is one of seven uniformed services. Uh, Much like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, and a very small commissioned corps of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And while it isn't considered part of the armed forces... We are unarmed. Its officers are active duty. 24-7, much like any other uniformed service. And speaking of uniforms... You can see the resemblance of our, our uniforms to the Navy. Actually, our our khaki uniforms preceded the Navy's khaki uniforms. You can also see a resemblance of ranks. We are of the similar ranks as the Navy or Coast Guard because we're a maritime service. The Commissioned Corps actually has a special relationship with the Coast Guard. You may know how the Navy provides the medical infrastructure for the Marines. Well, the Coast Guard doesn't have physicians or dentists or pharmacists. They rely on the Commissioned Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service. But back to the recent mission in West Africa, Rear Admiral Scott Guyberson was commander of the commissioned corps Ebola response there. So he was among those who set up a 25-bed field hospital called the Monrovia Medical Unit, or MMU. The MMU was designed to treat healthcare responders who became infected with the Ebola virus. Over six months, the MMU saw 42 patients from nine different nations. Of those 42, 18 were diagnosed with Ebola. Of those 18, nine survived The U.S. Department of Defense inactivated the MMU at the end of April. The World Health Organization declared Liberia free of Ebola in May. When I sat down with Rear Admiral Guyberson earlier this week, he took me back to the fall, when the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps was first asked whether it could help combat Ebola in West Africa. Now our officers are active duty. They're 24-7. So if we said deploy based on the secretary's directive, we would deploy. And we could deploy who we want, you know, who we need to, to send. However... Uh, because of the anxiety, because of the situation with families, because of the unknown time length that we would be you know, working this, we asked for uh, the officers that would be willing to go right up front, initially voluntarily, 
within the first 24 hours of that request going out from my deputy commander, uh, we had over 1,000 responses in 24 hours, willing to go and volunteering to go. Within the first week, we had over 5,000 responses, and our core is 6,700. And then it's a different segue, I should say, to the president of the United States who tasked us with uh, deploying to West Africa and supporting a, a Monrovia medical unit. Well, let's talk about that Monrovia medical unit, um, MMU. Who were the people you treated there? We, we, we treated healthcare responders. It was for healthcare workers in, in Liberia or West Africa that came to Liberia to fight uh, the Ebola outbreak. So if it was a, a physician or a nurse or a pharmacist, much like you'd think a traditional healthcare worker, but it was also the people working in the ETU. In other words, if there was a burial team or an ambulance driver, not necessarily a healthcare professional, but a healthcare responder, uh, we were able to provide healthcare access to them as well. So really, it's, it's an incredible mission that you rarely get the opportunity to have impact on potentially thousands, even hundreds of thousands of lives when you have the ability to provide access to care in this sort of situation where you have a historical outbreak of undocumented proportion. I've read some criticisms that suggested the U.S. government didn't respond quickly enough to the Ebola crisis. Some people would say that in Liberia in particular, the outbreak was already on the wane by the time the Monrovia medical unit was built. What are your thoughts on that? When we arrived, there was roughly about 80 cases per day still. To me, 80 cases a day is a crisis, and it's not waning or building. It's a crisis, and uh, we were there to help uh, whether or not at the timing we got there was what we did was respond to our task. And when the president said go, we went and uh, we completed our mission. So we're very proud of that. Let's talk about the lessons you've taken away from the Ebola epidemic. If another outbreak were to occur, what do you think might be different the next time around? Much like in any disaster, I think you learn from experience. And this was the first we had to respond to such a large outbreak of Ebola. Everybody learned from it. Uh, even the the countries that had the Ebola outbreak, and I think that's the main. I think the main lesson learned will be the in-country awareness. We can only do so much as a as a nation coming into the host country. So whether it's Liberia, Guinea, or the next country, if it were to have an Ebola outbreak, I think the country's response makes the difference because we're just augmenting the response. They are the true responders, and it's their country and their people. So uh, you know, hopefully, their lessons learned will prevent a future outbreak or a future outbreak of that magnitude. From our side, you know, we had to work with a lot of partners. We've worked with a lot of partners on a lot of different responses, international responses for tsunamis or earthquakes or whatever it may be. We've worked with international partners. So our familiarity with DOD is always there, the Department of Defense. But in this context, it was a little bit different because it was an enemy that was unseen. It was an enemy that continued to progress. Earthquake, tsunami, you have the disaster, and then the disaster is over, and you start in recovery almost immediately. This is an insidious progression. It's something that adds fear and anxiety to the mix. Uh, so it's a much different disaster dynamic, and I think that we, we learned in a new situation with an infectious pathogen that was deadly, and we learned how to work together in that environment. That was Rear Admiral Scott Guyberson, the commander of the Commissioned Corps Ebola Response in West Africa. We have more about the U.S. Public Health Service Commissioned Corps on our website, metroconnection.org, including a photo of the survivor wall at the Monrovia Medical Unit. It's where Ebola survivors stamped a pink print of their hands beneath the words, Today I am healed. Tomorrow I return to heal another. Again, you can find it on our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from Africa and public health to the Middle East and civil rights. In countries like Yemen and Saudi Arabia, homosexuality is a crime. 
punishable by death. So most LGBT Arabs lead deeply closeted lives. But some end up leaving their countries and taking refuge in places where laws protect LGBT people. Lauren Ober brings us the story of one Saudi Arabian lesbian who left home to pursue a graduate degree at George Mason University and never went back. AJ and I meet for a drink near her home in Sherlington. I get an iced tea and she gets a beer, an act that would be considered haram or against Islamic law in her native Saudi Arabia. My mom was very strict. I really couldn't go out with friends, couldn't, you know, leave the house or visit friends or do anything. Basically, there isn't much about this situation that wouldn't be haram back home. The 34-year-old drove her car to the restaurant by herself, isn't wearing hijab, and is talking openly about her life as a lesbian. None of this would happen in Saudi Arabia. That's part of what led AJ to seek asylum here last year based on her LGBT status. Now she's waiting on her green card, which is why we're using her initials rather than her full name. Until she gets permanent residency here, AJ says safety is still a concern. Growing up, personal safety wasn't something AJ had to worry about much until she realized she was gay. I always had crush on women. Uh, Another fun fact about Saudi, uh, it's very normal for females in in the school system and college to have a crush on another female. So that was sort of normal. But then when it became more sexual, and that's where you drew the line, I knew there was more to it. And then, you know, as we even do today, I took to Google, looked up my symptoms. (laughs) Google tells me I'm gay. I'm like, oh, no, I'm not. (laughs) Wait, what? I want to know what you What were your search terms in Google to look up your symptoms? Liking girl, fantasizing about girls. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So when was that? How old were you then? I must have been, I was a senior in high school, so I was 17. If you are 18 or 19 years old and you're in Saudi and you're like, well, it looks like I'm a lesbian, what do you do then? Because it's not like you can go to the gay clubs and meet people or even in your classes meet people. How did you make that work for yourself? Um, Online. Just, you know, the Internet was new in Saudi and you had these different chat rooms there were a few of them that were catered for lesbians and just went online and talked to people. But everything's like, you don't know anyone's name. You just talk to them. You don't have their number. You don't talk to them on the phones. Just strictly chatting online. And my first girlfriend that I met online, it probably took me over a year and a half to two years just to learn her first name. So oh that tells you. Are you kidding me? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you're from the religious police. I don't know if you're... Just a guy who has fantasies about lesbians. I, I, I don't know if you're my sister or brother or mother online. I, I don't know. When you realize that you fell in this window, that asylum was something that you could seek, uh, what were some of the issues that you were weighing? So there were, there were a lot of those considerations from financial, even emotionally, to come to terms with accepting being an asylee, someone who's sort of stateless. It was a struggle. You know, you feel you're betraying your family and you're missing out on 
I missed out on my sister getting married, and I'm very close to her, and that was that was very painful. So the, these considerations. So you you are applying for your green card, but what would have happened for you if you stayed in Saudi? Like, what's it like there for people who do identify as gay? Uh, no one identifies as gay publicly. Uh, at least I do not think so. It has Saudi has progressed, but not to that point. It might be easier to go out or go out on a date, but does not mean you're holding hands or you're going to take her back home or have a romantic evening. I'm sort of like even too scared to think of what would have happened had I gone back home. I have no idea how this would have played out. Do you have a different view of, of yourself? I mean, now you're you're an asylee. In a way, you know, I'm about to apply for my green card, which I thought was never going to happen. So there's definitely a sense of pride. That was AJ, a Saudi woman living in the Washington region, talking with Metro Connections' Lauren Ober. After the break, the unintended passengers on international cargo ships. There's about 150 or so non-natives that live in the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, and the great majority of those came over from ships one way or another. That and more as our Global DC edition of Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to our Global DC edition of Metro Connection as we explore the international side of life in and around the nation's capital. This next story is about what happens when the world comes to DC by accident. You've likely heard of invasive species and the havoc they can wreak on ecosystems. Many invasive species sneak their way into the DC region through the ballast water of cargo ships. Scientists have been worrying about this problem for decades, but as Jonathan Wilson tells us, local researchers now have a new weapon, known simply as the barge. Mario Tamburi is the de facto captain of the barge, a research ship that's the product of the Maritime Environmental Research Center, or MERC. The barge is currently docked in Baltimore Harbor, and Tamburi is giving me a tour of the 155-foot vessel, along with a short history lesson on cargo ships and ballast. When ships are not carrying cargo, they sit very high in the water, they're very light, and so they can't travel across the oceans very well that way. For many years, ballast was things like stones, right? And you heard in the the old sailing ship days that a lot of cobblestone streets in the New World were were paved by ballast stones. It's, It's really the modern shipping industry the last 100 years or so that's really gone towards ballast water as a way to keep the ships uh, low in the water when they don't have cargo. It seems like an elegant solution. Seawater is, by definition, the most plentiful resource in the ocean, and it's heavy. After unloading cargo at a port, a cargo ship simply sucks in some seawater from the harbor and pushes off, ready to glide through the water as fast as ever. Problems arise when the ships release that foreign ballast water and the many live organisms that can reside in it at their next stop, another port 
one in the Chesapeake Bay, perhaps. There's about 150 or so non-natives that live in the waters of the Chesapeake Bay, and the great majority of those came over from ships one way or another. And we have things like the green crab, the, the rapa whelk, and, and a few others. In fact, we have zebra mussels in the watershed, the freshwater part of the Chesapeake Bay. Zebra mussels, native to eastern Europe, represent the worst-case scenario in Tamburi's field. The mussels hitched a ride in the ballast water of cargo ships and were discovered in the Great Lakes in the late 80s. The species thrived in the new environment, reproducing so fast that it crowded out native mussels. It also caused major declines in the fish that feed on those native mussels and became so abundant in some areas that colonies clogged water intake pipes at power plants. The zebra mussel invasion led to the first national legislation regulating ballast water treatments. That's where the barge comes in. It's a collaboration between the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, the Maryland Port Administration, and the U.S. Maritime Administration. The rules are out there, and the rules are going to help minimize the risk of invasions. Now the real key, and what we're really focused on, is, is making sure that the treatment systems that are available for ships to treat their water really work. Tambori leads me over to a network of green, red, and blue pipes, some of which are spewing water onto the deck of the barge. Tamburi's team is in the midst of testing a ballast water treatment system from a company called Evaqua. The barge has just taken in a load of ballast water and is now flushing the pipes. Right now we're just draining the system after we did a fill event where we mimicked the uptake of water on a ship, treating it and putting it into a ballast tank. We also um, brought on board water that's been untreated at the same time, so we have a control versus treatment sort of approach. We can test how well the system works. The testing is exhaustive. Each test takes about a week and must be repeated five times. The barge will also move, testing the same system in the saltier waters of Norfolk Harbor and fresher waters further north in the bay. All in all, that's 15 weeks of testing for one ballast water treatment system. And the idea is that if it meets the discharge standard after we do this trial several times here in Baltimore, several times in Norfolk, several times in freshwater, then we um, have data that the Coast Guard can use to say this is a, a system works, it's certified for use, you can put it on board your ship. A certified treatment system is supposed to pretty much obliterate invasive organisms lurking in ballast water. Tamburi says in untreated water, there can be between 500,000 and a million live organisms per cubic meter. Once the water is treated, that number should be just 10 live organisms per cubic meter. The testing and the treatment systems are both getting more sophisticated. But that doesn't necessarily mean the problem of ballast water invasives is on the way out. Ships are getting bigger and faster, um, and so organisms that couldn't survive uh, long voyages might be able to survive short voyages. Um, there's new things now like uh, the expansion of the Panama Canal. There's also the potential for using the Northwest Passage, the Arctic route, um, as global warming continues and icy ice retreats, ships will be using that route in the near future during certain seasons, which opens up all new mechanisms for invaders. So ballast water is still a problem. Um, treating that water is still critical to stop invaders in the future. And it's a future in which the barge looks to play a big role. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Want to see the barge for yourself? Head to our website, metroconnection.org.
Over the past year and a half, the Washington region has received 9,000 undocumented children from Central America. For many of these children, the journey across the U.S.-Mexico border is fraught with peril. And for some, it includes time spent in the U.S. government's detention system for juveniles. Georgetown University professor Susan Terrio wanted to know more about that system and meet some of the children who have experienced it. She recently published a book with her findings. It's called Whose Child Am I? Unaccompanied, Undocumented Children in U.S. Immigration Custody. WAMU's Armando Truel recently sat down with Terrio, and as she told him, she began the project with a lot of basic questions about these children. I was very interested in understanding who this vulnerable population of unaccompanied, undocumented children were. What were their motivations for leaving the home country? What happened to them on the journey? What happened to them crossing the border? Who did they belong to? What were their family stories? And who has the ultimate responsibility for them? And so this book is about the federal custodial system that emerged from a settlement between attorneys representing Salvadoran plaintiffs and the government that resulted in a set of national standards to guarantee more humane treatment and the prompt release from custody of unaccompanied children who had been apprehended and detained. There is a question about who has the ultimate responsibility to take care of an undocumented unaccompanied Central American child when there are no relatives in this country and where there is no one that has any link to this child. And in fact, what I discovered when I did the research inside these closed facilities, and then also identified 40 young migrants whom I followed over a number of years, is in fact that there are three distinct populations. There are children who really don't have any parents or legal guardians in this country to whom they can be released. There are also children who are coming knowing that they have parents who came ahead and who are in the country without legal status. But then there's a third population that we don't hear very much about who were brought here by their parents and have lived most of their lives in this country and have been educated in American schools and come to the attention of immigration authorities largely through child welfare or juvenile courts. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, detention centers and some of the things that you found uh, startling. Okay. Well, first of all, I uh, what I found really surprising was that we had there is a system of closed federal facilities for these kids. Um, so one of the immediate consequences of being apprehended and coming to the attention of immigration authorities, and if you're designated as an unaccompanied minor and you are not very young or you are not a pregnant or nursing teen or have some kind of disability, you are subjected to mandatory detention in a closed facility. On the one hand, and on on the other hand, you're also put into deportation proceedings in a federal immigration court. So when you think about that, on the one hand, the Office of Refugee Resettlement becomes the legal guardian of these children, making all of the decisions with regard to custody, the length of custody, the length of time, and including release. And then on the other hand, prosecutes them in federal immigration courts for unlawful presence. And that's a particular problem, as we know, because they're not guaranteed appointed legal representation or child advocates to speak for their best interests. And the other thing that I want to point out is that huge resources go into the front end of the system, which is risk assessments, detention beds, the recruitment of staff, services while they're in custody – 
immigration court proceedings and deportations and removals, but very few, if any, resources go to community-based services after they're released, and as I've said, to legal representation and child advocates, and that's a problem. And so where do you see the solution coming? I think we need alternatives to um, a mass detention system. One of the arguments I make in the book is that there is no humane way to incarcerate families and children. It should not be a first response. It should be a last resort. I think that to put um, young people and families into detention, however whatever the the, uh, security level, is to deny them full due process rights, is to treat them like criminal defendants, is to traumatize and stigmatize them, and ultimately to squander taxpayer dollars. We spend a huge amount of money, and those dollars would be better spent on legal representation, community-based services, and other ways to integrate them within American society. That was Susan Terrio, a professor at Georgetown University and author of Whose Child Am I? Unaccompanied Undocumented Children in U.S. Immigration Custody, talking with WAMU's Armando Troll. You can find more of Armando's reporting on the influx of children from Central America on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Wheaton, Maryland, and the U Street area of Northwest D.C. My name is Marion Fryer, and I live in Wheaton, Maryland for 37 years. Wheaton has always been a neighbor, kind of a neighborhood to me, because it's small. The footprint is small. It's not like Silver Spring. Rockville or Bethesda in terms of, you know, the people and in terms of the businesses. We have some of the most unique businesses in Wheaton that you won't find anyplace else. Over the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years, we have had a lot of change in terms of demographics, in terms of ethnicities. We have a lot of wonderful new neighbors who are from all different countries now. Everything I need is right here in Wheaton. Shopping. My church is here, and there are a lot of unique, I would say, religious organizations to meet everybody's needs. I think one of the unique things about Wheaton is that we we are diverse, but we do a lot of things together. My name is Zara Jelani, and I live right here on U Street. U Street goes from about U and 16th Street to about U and 7th or 8th. The landscape is just very, very vibrant. Um, It's filled with many, many people of different cultures. And our major landmark, of course, near the metro station is the African American Civil War Memorial. Until 1920, U Street was the largest urban African American population in the entire United States. I really, really love U Street, and I love living here. We get so much more than you get from just coming on a night out. I love it because it's a center of the arts, music, and D.C. culture. 
Next time you come to U Street for a good time and a late night out, keep in mind the significance of the streets you're walking in and the heritage that lies within them. We heard from Marion Fryer in Wheaton and Zara Jelani on U Street. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. In a minute, a Czech Texan pastry makes its way to the nation's capital. Suddenly you see the editor of Bon Appetit magazine on the Today Show proclaiming kolache as the next cronut. It's been fascinating to see the kolache start to enjoy its 15 minutes of fame. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're bringing you our annual look at the international side of Washington, a show we call Global DC. Remember the cronut, the croissant donut concoction that had bakery customers lining up around the block for hours? Well, the cronut has been dethroned, or so says Bon Appetit magazine editor Adam Rappaport. Here he is talking with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. All right, great. We had a cronut craze in yes. 2014. What's that, the version of that in 2015? What, this is a regional specialty in Texas. It's a kolache, and, and it's a Czech donut that immigrants brought over years ago. In the- immigrants like the forebears of D.C. resident Chris Svetlik, who grew up in central Texas, baking kolaches from his Czech grandmother's recipe. You know, suddenly you see the editor of Bon Appetit magazine on the Today Show proclaiming kolache as the next cronut. And we don't fully know about that, but it is exciting that this food that we know and love potentially reaching broader audiences here. Chris Svetlick and fellow Texas transplant Brian Stanford recently launched their own kolache bakery here in the district at Mess Hall, a shared kitchen space for emerging food companies. The guys are among a tiny handful of kolache makers in the region, all Texas expats, and they're calling their business Republic Kolache Company. It's a nice nod to where we are now and where we came from. In other words, Chris says their present home, D.C. The seat of our republic. Their native home, Texas. Texas was once the Republic of Texas. And the original home of the Kalachi. The Czech Republic. Though, if we're actually speaking Czech, I should say Kolach. Technically, Kolache is plural. Kolach is singular. Traditionally, Czech Kolache are round pillows of semi-sweet yeast dough puffing up around a dollop of fruit filling, something like apricot or prune. But, says Chris Svetlick, after a wave of Czech immigration hit Texas at the turn of the 20th century... They basically reached a more mainstream audience, became less Czech. And as a result, kolach became... Kolachi, um, and kolachis would be the uh, plural, so everyone just calls them kolachis. They also went from being a traditional wedding dessert to more of a casual roadside snack. There are a couple of these very iconic kolachi bakeries that all, in this very weird, very Texan way, are attached to, like, giant gas station convenience stores. Yeah, they're not, uh, they're not really delicate in Texas. Another step in the kolach kolachi evolution? The shape. A few days before meeting Chris and Brian, I visit the kitchen of D.C.'s Blue Duck Tavern, where pastry chef and former Texan Naomi Gallego explains why Czech kolache are round. The origin of the word is kola, which is an old Slavic word, which means circle or ring. But in the Lone Star State? They start with rounds, and they bake them in a sheet. 
So they end up all baking together and they're kind of square. They pull off in squares. Not Naomi, though. I really like keeping with the tradition of keeping things in a circle. So at Blue Duck Tavern, where she just added strawberry rhubarb kolaches to the brunch menu, she uses a silicone muffin pan to maintain their round shape. At Republic Kolache Company, on the other hand, they go full on Texas and bake their kolaches side by side, so they come out more square. They also embrace the Lone Star tradition of adding savory flavors to the mix. In fact... All right, so we've pulled a sheet of dough balls that have been risen two times out of the fridge. We're now unwrapping them. It's this kind of savory kolache that Chris and Brian are making today, using a mini ice cream scoop. Trying to give you good sound design there. It's like some really emphatic scoops. <laughs> They're stuffing half their dough balls with chorizo, chipotle cheddar, and bacon, and half with half smoked sausage, sharp cheddar, and fried jalapenos. Brian Stanford explains the origins of the second one, what they're calling the L.B. Johnson. Texas, you get uh, a lot of uh, smoked beef sausage with cheese and sometimes jalapenos thrown in there. And what we wanted to do is a DC spin on that, and so we decided to substitute beef smoked sausage for uh, half smokes. Now, they do also offer fruit kolaches, but Chris Fetlick says with a modern local twist. Tonight, they're baking their first batch of strawberry ricotta with fruit and cheese from the farmer's market. Um, yeah, I don't think my ancestors were putting ricotta cheese into kolaches, but hopefully they're not turning in their grave. When I ask Chris how he thinks modern-day Czechs would respond... Um, I don't know what they would think of the of our kolaches. So, ever the enterprising reporter... Well, I actually brought some with me. I decide to find out from uh, two men. Uh, one of them, his, his family is Czech, and he grew up in Texas. I bring the and chorizo cheddar bacon and strawberry ricotta kolaches oh, to the cultural attaché at the embassy of, of the Czech Republic, whose name, by the way? Robert Rehak, which is very difficult to pronounce. I'm, I don't try it even. Robert takes one look at the chorizo kolache and says... No. For me, it's very unusual, and I, I don't even want to touch it if I see a sausage in the middle of kolache. For me, kolache is only sweet, uh, very sweet. But when he sees the strawberry ricotta? I would say this one, if it would be a little bit more around, this is the typical kolache. So would you like to taste them? Yes, of course, I will taste it. Oh, it's very good. It's very yeah. good, yeah. You know... You see that the taste, it's a little bit different because uh, you adjust the taste to the nation that you are going to introduce the product. But this is uh, quite very, very close and maybe the, even the same like I'm used to from, from my homeland. And that line between the new and the old, the adopted home and the native, that's the line Chris Svetlick and Brian Stanford want to walk. Keeping where the kolache came from in mind and preserving that is important. But the reason the first generation of kolache makers in the U.S. were making very specific flavors was just because it's all they had. You know, we are blessed with such a wide variety of ingredients we could use. And so, you know, I kind of feel like this is what they would be doing, not limiting themselves to some arcane definition, but just making good kolaches from whatever they can. Except with much thicker accents, probably. While we can't offer you a taste of kolaches, we can show you some mouth-watering photos. Find them on metroconnection.org. And if your own Czech grandma never baked up kolaches, local actor James Konacek wrote and recorded a lovely account of his memories. We have his essay for reading and listening on our website, too. Again, that's metroconnection.org.
We move now from food to what's been called the food of love, music. Sheikh Hamala Giabade was born in Mali. He's a griot, or joli, meaning he comes from a long line of historians, poets, and musicians from West Africa. He also gives advice and counsel to families. He's the only griot from Mali in the entire D.C. area, and he's known for playing the West African stringed instrument, the goni. Hans Andersen caught up with him before a show to discuss the joys and struggles of being the only griot in town. Hey, girls, don't want to see everything, bossa. Why should the DC? How y'all doing tonight? All right. We're enjoying the great music of Sheikh Hamala Jabate and the Grio Street Band. Okay, my name is Sheikh Hamala Jabate. I'm from Mali, West Africa. I am Grio. The Grio for our country have a lot of things to do for our society. So the Grio do the music, the Grio sing, the Grio is a historian, the Grio is a consulate, the Grio is an advisor. So we do a lot of things. The Grio have a three special instrument for our family. We have uh, the Goni, is the old one. The goni, my grandfather played the goni. So the goni is the ancestor of the American banjo. And after the goni, we have the kora. Kora is a 21 swing. And this 21 string, uh, the harp comes from the kora. And we have the bala. The bala have a 21 key, and the xylophone comes from the bala. You see this culture, uh, we, are, we are very old. It's, um, it's more than 800 years. Those people, I don't know how to explain to you, people get uh, everywhere you go the life. Mali is a very old country, and people get a lot of the guitar, all this came from the goni, a lot of things. So I'm a goni player. I choose to play the goni because you, when you, you're born, you grow up, all this instrument is in the house. But I play guitar and also I play banjo. When I came to America, I worked with Lara Banjo player. And this music, I come here to America, I play with everyone. I play any kind of music, me. I share my culture with people. They learn something from me, I learn something from them. That's very important. That's what I do here in America. I remember a long time ago, they always called me the griot of the Congress. Because uh, every time when any president came from Africa, they invite me, I go sit down, play my goni, bring peace for all, everybody. Like, uh, you know, I'm uh, only the griot here. I miss, you know, I, I like to tell you, because it's a million, million people, our culture, so we put together good music. But I'm here, I miss uh, my family, I miss, you know, the other grill. It's not easy, but that's my life, so God sent me here. It's very difficult, but God is big. I 
go to many universities, they ask me, check, I want to be grill. And I tell people, you, we born grill. You don't want to be grill. You, we born grill. I'm very happy to go to Mali, come back, to go to different places and come back. Because uh, the music is uh, universal. We work all the world. People know the grill. People know Mali music. It's very it's about the connection. That was musician Sheikh Hamala Giabade talking with Metro Connections Hans Anderson. We'll wrap things up today with a little more music. Flori Jagoda is often credited with keeping Sephardic Jewish music alive. She moved from Europe to Virginia as a newlywed in the 1940s. And now, as a National Endowment for the Arts National Heritage Fellow, she shares traditional folk songs and original compositions with audiences around the world. Without Flory, much of this music would have been lost to the Nazi campaign against the Jewish populations of Eastern Europe, including Flory's native Bosnia. Lauren Landau visited Flory at her home in Alexandria to discuss her deep musical roots. Flory Jagoda is strumming her guitar and singing to herself when I walk into a small room in her apartment. The 91-year-old has a concert in a few days and needs to rehearse. Okay, what are we going to do? Do you want to uh, start, start at the beginning of the song? Okay. She's joined by two people she knows very well, trio Sephardi members Howard Bass, who plays lute and guitar, and vocalist-guitarist Susan Gaeta, who's pretty much Flory's protege. She's getting ready to do the teaching to continue what I'm doing, and I love that. These three have been playing together for decades. Howard and Flory first met back in the 80s. But their story begins more than 500 years ago, in Europe. In 1492, hundreds of thousands of Sephardic Jews were forced to leave Spain. They took their religion and their language with them as they settled in North Africa, the Middle East, and southeastern Europe. Centuries later, in a Bosnian village called Vlasenica, Flori's Nona made sure her Serbo-Croatian-speaking granddaughter knew where she came from and how to speak the Judeo-Spanish language known as Ladino. The mission of a woman, a mission that she had to follow, was to speak to the children and to her daughters, teach them the Ladino only so a child would hear that right from the beginning. Flory is trying to keep these traditions and the memory of her family alive by teaching what she learned as a young girl, even though younger generations can't experience it in the same way. She says American grandchildren can't make Ladino their home, and that's okay. Here, she says, people have life. Growing up in the Balkans, people had fear. I want to be an American, see. And I'm, I'm crazy about this country. I love this country. Good to me. Gave me life. But I don't want to forget Nona. Flory escaped the fate shared by millions of European Jews. But Nazi sympathizers massacred the Jewish villagers who stayed in Vlasenica, including 42 members of Flory's family. And that was my pain for the rest of my life. 42 of them were just 
take them to the forest and pull them around. And one by one would drop down. So Nona had a very bad ending. So this is why my heart is with her, and I want to do what she used to do. To the people she plays with, Flory is more than a fellow musician. She's their matriarch, revered and loved. Howard and Susan call her Nona. They're a family. All the songs I have written mostly is about the family. I think we start our first one today about the ants. We had so many ants, and what did each one of them do? It's funny, but, uh, you know, I like funny songs. (laughs) She says those are the songs that work, the funny ones. She sings about family, love, and about holidays, too. Her Hanukkah song, Ocho Candelicas, is popular, especially with children. But she says people don't like sad songs, and she doesn't enjoy teaching them. I know it's part of our tradition, part of our history. But after I had a taste of Holocaust, I don't want to be sad. I cry. On the other hand, she also says people who've suffered sing better. You can't effectively evoke the blues if you haven't been down and out, right? It comes out of your inside. You only can do that if you feel it or if you have gone through something like that. She wrote the song Sviri Harmoniku, or Play the Accordion, about an extremely difficult moment in her life. It's not another song. It's the life of a person. It happens to be me, but it is a life of many, many people who have gone through the same thing, willingly or not willingly, but they're stuck with it like I was. Her parents shielded Flory from the dark reality of what was brewing in Europe until the day they could no longer ignore it or stay. My father coming home, white as a sheet. We have to run away. We have to run away. Why? We have to run away. Don't ask any questions. Just play your accordion, he told her. The next day, the teenager removed the Star of David from her clothing, grabbed her forged train ticket with its non-Jewish name, and went to the station in Zagreb. At 17, she was on her way to the coastal city of Split, alone with just her accordion for company. She calls it a harmonica. So here I am in a train, and the choo-choo starts going. Conductor comes in. I'm already playing. I mean, I was playing for four hours. The conductor never asked me for the train ticket. He liked a harmonica. Sphiri Harmoniku tells that story and shares how Flory felt leaving her family and home behind. So, go, go. Singing in Croatian, there's sadness in her voice as she repeats the advice her father gave her so many decades ago. Don't speak, just play your accordion. She switches to English at some points. What have I done, she asks. She says Susan and Howard will continue teaching and sharing Ladino music after she's gone. But she's not so optimistic about the long-term future of these traditional sounds. It's going to disappear. You think so? Oh, it has to. Not enough is taught. 
you've dedicated your life to sharing this music, to making yes, I did. to making Ladino music heard, but you think that it's not enough. going to die. Not, not enough. So how does that make you feel as someone who's done this? This will not go on unless it's used by people. When we were together, the first thing you did is sing. You sing. We don't have it anymore. But at least for now, we have Flory, who's doing what she can to keep the music she loves alive, nearly 5,000 miles away from where her Nona taught it to her. I'm Lauren Landau. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Hans Anderson, Lauren Landau, Lauren Ober, Jonathan Wilson, and Armando Truel. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our brand new interns are Molly Loray and Jamie Rapp. Julie Alderman produced this week's Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and to the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link to it on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you an hour of milestones. We'll bring back our series, Beating the Odds, featuring the stories of D.C. kids who've overcome major obstacles to graduate from high school. We'll get the latest on the politics of D.C.'s summer jobs program, and we'll meet a man who met a personal health milestone by climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. (laughs) 